Now, everyone today, it seems, is looking for a sign. And it's not just our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters who are seeking signs, is it? Many other Christians are constantly on the lookout for signs that point to the end times coming. And with all of the news that's coming out of Russia over the past couple of days, our dispensationalist brothers and sisters' minds are likely repeatedly being blown again and again what's been going on. And we Reformed folk, we think we are cessationists, and we Reformed folk in many ways are are practical continuationists. We still look for those signs. We see things around us that seem to be to us confirmations of what we ought to do, who we ought to talk to, how we ought to behave. But I've heard people who don't believe in any kind of higher power talk about how the universe was trying to tell them something by sending them a sign. And this notion, of course, is is well uh, ingrained in pop culture. Even recently, the song Sign of the Times debuted at number one on Billboard, the Billboard charts in 2017. And now those of you of a certain generation are going to have that tune running through your heads and the rest of you are wondering what on earth I'm talking about. And that's okay. It's almost as if we're hardwired to look for signs, but at the same time comically inept at seeing the real ones for what they actually are. God has made specific promises in His Word, and He has given definite signs that point to those promises, two of which we find in Scripture are circumcision and baptism, one for God's Old Testament people and one for His New Testament people. And though the signs are very different, one the cutting off and the other the putting on, they point to the same thing. And that's what signs do. They point to something. They let you know about something that you might not have otherwise known about. But signage can become almost meaningless if there are too many signs on the landscape. There's a phenomenon that's been labeled visual pollution, which refers to the visual clutter of man-made objects usually found in an urban or a suburban setting. You you drive into parts of Dallas or Fort Worth or even in, in suburban areas and you'll see this and there's so much going on you can't really tell where you are or what you're doing. And some of that clutter, that urban type of clutter, it consists of signs, but also overhead power lines, buildings, other types of structures. And I think that part of the compulsion that many of us have to get away from all of this, to get out into open country, is because we can't see the beauty for the signs. To get away from all of the visual clutter that we have all around us. In the open country, the the occasional sign beside the highway stands out in ways that it wouldn't if there were hundreds of other signs all around it. And so, like urban planners, Christians have done quite well at cluttering the theological landscape in our attempts to call attention to various types of biblical signage. Now, it's true that Scripture is full of references to signs, from the sign of the rainbow that pointed to the covenant God made between himself and Noah to the signs mentioned in the book of Revelation. But the primary signs God speaks of in his word are the two signs that point to the one covenant of grace that he made with his people, circumcision and baptism. And I would say that because of all of the other signage that we Christians have thrown up, that we Christians are looking for and looking at, We've forgotten about these two signs. And it's unfortunate that we've done so. As we're going through the sermon, I would ask you to consider this thought. Circumcision and baptism are signs that point to the wrath of God upon sinners and the promise of God 
that all who believe in Jesus Christ are raised in him. Again, circumcision and baptism are signs that point to the wrath of God upon sinners and the promise of God that all who believe in Jesus are raised in him. The sermon has two parts. The first is a circumcision made without hands. And the second, buried and raised with him. Again, a circumcision made without hands is the first part of the sermon. The second, buried and raised with him. So let's look at the first part of the sermon, a circumcision made without hands. In verse 11, Paul may be continuing the thought from verse 10, or he may be changing the subject. The commentators on this passage are somewhat divided on that. But either way, verse 11 is part of its immediate context. And Paul writes in verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so the also in verse 11 is at the very least an addition to what he said in verse 10, where he said, And you, having, you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And then our verse, In him also you were circumcised. So the believer, according to the previous passage, Beginning, going back to verse 6, has received Christ Jesus the Lord, is rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, that's verse 7, has been filled in him, verse 10. And we might say that these are benefits that have accrued to the believer. But verse 11 speaks of a cutting off or a taking away, a circumcision made without hands. And so Paul has been speaking about things that have been added to the believer. Here, now he's talking about something that has been taken away. Circumcision is first mentioned in the Bible when God made a covenant with Abraham. God told Abraham in Genesis 17, beginning in verse 9, he said, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout the gener- their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Circumcision in the first place is, as indicated from the passage in Genesis, a symbol of divine judgment. If any male in Israel does not receive the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant God made with Abraham, the father of Israel, he will be cut off from Israel. And you remember those, that generation, the generation, the children of the parents who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, the generation who went into the promised land, what was the first thing they had to do before they did anything else after crossing the Jordan River? All of the males, young and old, they had to be circumcised. They had to be before they engaged in any of their campaigning against the Canaanite people. Meredith Klein in his book, Kingdom Prologue, says that the symbolic meaning of circumcision is as a covenantal knife or cutting rite, quite obviously to be understood as portraying the curse inflicted by the sword of God's judgment. 
In some ways, I know this is a little bit loaded, but in some ways it's a little bit like a vaccination, isn't it? An inoculation. You receive a little bit of the illness, the disease, the virus, in order to protect you from the worst aspects of it. A little bit of cutting so that you don't undergo the massive cutting of God's sword of judgment. And so males in Old Testament Israel were to have part of themselves cut off so that they would not be cut off from Israel. And so in other words, circumcision was a sign that pointed to God's judgment. But it also pointed to salvation from it by means of a sacrifice, which was signified by the sacrifice of flesh. Circumcision did not save But circumcision, in as much as it was a a symbol of sacrifice, in as much as as it pointed to the sacrifice that can save, that does save, that would save them if they believed in it, it was effective. Now, I've often talked about Christ's baptism. I preached a sermon which made reference to his baptism not too many months ago. Why was Jesus baptized? What was the purpose of him receiving the baptism from John? But I haven't spoken much about his circumcision, mostly because I haven't preached through the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is the only Gospel that mentions the circumcision of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 21 says this, And at the end of eight days, there you go, he's following, his parents are following what was commanded of Abraham back in Genesis 17. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And Beale makes a compelling case in his commentary that Jesus was circumcised in the temple on the eighth day. His parents took him from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to the temple to be circumcised. Verse 11 of our passage speaks of a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision made without hands, which was in him. But Jesus had a literal physical circumcision. He received the sign of the covenant, which portrayed to him the judgment he would endure on the cross because of not his sin, but our sin. His physical circumcision was, be, was fulfilled by being cursed, by being sacrificed on the cross. He was the sacrifice to which his circumcision pointed. He literally was cut off from his people because of their sins. And we who are united to Christ have been circumcised spiritually, a circumcision made without hands because we being in him were cut off with him. The body of flesh, that is our sinful nature, has been put off. We're dead to sin by the circumcision, the sacrificial death of Christ. And one thing that we need to remember as we're in the, in the depths of these verses is that Paul here is contending against the false teachers who are trying to infiltrate the church in Colossae. And one of the favorite false teachings of these false teachers was to say that in order to be a Christian, Gentiles must be circumcised like Jews. In other words, they had to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. But Paul here is saying that true circumcision is spiritual circumcision. Physical circumcision in the Old Testament pointed to Christ's sacrifice of his body on the cross for you and me. And believing in him means that you have been circumcised spiritually. And so Beale writes, Paul views the external rite of circumcision where a piece of flesh is stripped off to be a typological pointer to the greater redemptive reality of the entire body of Christ 
and his followers being circumcised or cut off from the old sinful world and set apart to a new one. Old Testament circumcision was a token of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. It was a bloody sacrament, a bloody sign of the covenant, which was administered in the Old Testament in very bloody ways. The temple ran with the blood of the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And speaking of the Old Testament sign of the covenant, Klein writes, but circumcision also presented the promise of the cross, inviting the circumcised to identify by faith with Christ to undergo the judgment of God in him and so find in his circumcision judgment the way to the Father to justification and life. But because the crucifixion of Jesus Christ meant the end of the Old Testament sacrificial system, in other words, the old administration of the covenant of grace was giving way with the advent of Jesus to a new administration of the covenant of grace, a new sign of the covenant had to be given. The bloody sacrificial system, along with its bloody sign, was passing away. It would end following the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so a new sign had to be given because the old administration was being done away with. And that new sign is baptism. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, buried and raised with him. In verse 12, Paul writes, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Circumcision pointed, symbolized or pointed to God's judgment on sinners. And baptism does as well, though in a bloodless way, which is fitting since the sacrificial system has been dismantled through the perfect final sacrifice of Jesus. Just as the circumcision of Christ in verse 11 refers to Christ's death, so too does baptism in verse 12, buried with him in baptism. And so baptism, just like circumcision, is in the first place a symbol of divine judgment. That's what Peter's getting at in in 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3, 18-22, Peter makes a connection between the waters of baptism and the flood in the time of Noah. He writes in verses 20 and 21, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a sign of God's judgment. It corresponds to the flood in Noah's day. Water was regularly used as a form of judgment by God. Think of the Exodus when Israel was fleeing the Egyptians. They crossed the the Red Sea on dry ground, but then the waters closed in on the Egyptians as they pursued them. And they crushed, those waters crushed the Egyptian army. Think of Jonah, who was thrown into the water of the sea as God's punishment for his disobedience. As judgment on King Ahab's idolatry, God withheld rain for over three years during the time of Elijah. These are all ways in which water was related to God's judgment in the Old Testament. But in baptism, the waters of God's judgment have been tamed. The sign of judgment in the Old Testament has become the sign and seal of the covenant in the New Testament. It's amazing that water, which symbolizes God's wrath and destruction, would be sprinkled or poured on the heads of little babies, the weakest among us, to signify to them and to seal for them the covenant. 
the water is symbolic of the violent judgment of God. But these fierce waters have been tamed because Jesus Christ endured God's wrath in the place of his people. And we're often taught by well-meaning people that baptism symbolizes what has happened to us, that it represents our death to sin and new life in Christ, that baptism represents what we have done by making a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And while this is true to an extent, what Paul is emphasizing in Colossians 2 is that baptism primarily represents Christ's punishment in our place, his death and his victory over sin and death through the resurrection. Christ is the primary reference point in baptism, not the individual being baptized. It's not about you, brothers and sisters. It's about Jesus. It is first symbolic of the judgment poured out on Christ, and only after that is it symbolic of our being hidden in and protected by Christ from that judgment. And that's part of the reason why the New Testament sign of the covenant of grace can be applied to infants, people who have not yet professed faith in Christ, because it's a sign not of what they have done, but of what Jesus has done for his people. The other part of the reason that the New Testament sign of the covenant of grace can be applied to infants is because it corresponds with and is the fulfillment of circumcision. In verse 11, the circumcision of Christ does not refer to his physical circumcision on the eighth day as as, uh, detailed by Luke chapter 2. It talks about, verse 11 speaks of his spiritual circumcision of being cut off from this life, his death on the cross. And so baptism also refers to or points to Christ's death. Verse 12 says, having been buried with him, that's referring to Christ's death. And so circumcision and baptism both signify that the believer in Christ is united to Christ and has died with him. It does not say that the person receiving the sign is united to Christ and has died with him. It teaches that if he or she believes this, it will be true of them. Do you get that? It's not saying that just because you've received that sign, it means you have died and you will be raised. It's saying if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have died and you will be raised. Because they are both signs of the covenant of grace, one for God's Old Testament people and the other for God's New Testament people, they are to be received by all who are part of God's covenant people, though in the Old Testament that only applied to males. And just as infants in God's Old Testament people were to receive the sign of the covenant of grace, so also infants in God's New Testament people are to receive the sign. Only now it has been expanded to include infant girls as well. Baptism, just like circumcision was in the Old Testament, is the first step in the making of disciples. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 is where Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As Klein puts it, demonstrating the correspondence between circumcision and baptism, circumcision was a vow of consecration marking entrance into God's covenant. By this oath sign, one was consigned to a status of discipleship under God's sovereign lordship. Matching circumcision in all major aspects is the new covenant ordinance of baptism. 
And so he goes on to say that both circumcision and baptism symbolize God's judgment and the curse of death. They point, both of them, to the de- to death with Christ. They are both a sign of separation from the world and membership in God's covenant community, the church. So rather than a shift to an exclusion of infants from the New Testament sign of the covenant, baptism is an expansion of the sign to include infant girls and women, which in a sense reflects Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations. And so baptism signifies Christ's death and by faith the believer's death with him. But it also points to Christ's resurrection and our resurrection along with him. For a person who is outside of Christ, there is only death, God's judgment for sin. This is certainly signified in circumcision and baptism. However, for the one who believes, who is united to Christ by faith, you who are also, you, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Every human being except Adam and Eve and Jesus Christ is born spiritually dead. Spiritual death precedes physical death. In the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Spiritual death is as real as is physical death. But spiritual death does not always result in eternal judgment. Verse 13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. If you are in Christ, having been united by faith to him, he is your ark who will take you through the flood of God's judgment. Just as the water of baptism does not save a person who receives it, the water isn't what saved Noah and his family. God's choosing Noah to build the ark is what saved him. Noah was brought safely through the waters of God's judgment in the ark for which God provided the plans. You aren't saved by the waters of baptism. You are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are brought safely through the waters of God's judgment in Christ. This is the result of having placed your faith in Him. You have been raised spiritually with Christ. You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. As Paul says in verse 13, God has forgiven us of all of our trespasses. And he did so, verse 14 says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Just as the sign that said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, was nailed to the cross over his head, so too was your record of debts that you owed to God. Your debt was nailed to the cross. Jesus paid the debt you owed to his Father. The law has no claim on you now. The law cannot condemn you now. But there's even more that Jesus did for you. Verse 15 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And a better translation, a rough accordance with Beale's commentary might be that God stripped the rulers and authorities and led them in Christ in a triumphal procession. The background of this verse was the Roman's army, Roman army's custom of stripping their defeated enemies of their army, uh, I'm sorry, of their armor, of their weapons and their clothing and parading them naked through their cities to humiliate them and show them that they had show their people that these people had been defeated. The, sat- the satanic powers thought that this was what they had done to Jesus on the cross. But Paul says that in fact, Jesus, by his resurrection from the the dead, has done it to them. 
Satan and his demonic host still flail about in the throes of death, but they cannot harm the believer. If you are in Christ, you have been set free from Satan's power. You are safe from him. And baptism and circumcision before it points to all of this. It signifies to us Jesus Christ and his completed work, which results in salvation for everyone who believes. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then the judgment that awaits Satan and his demons awaits you. If you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, then the judgment that is spoken of in this passage, it's your judgment. If you were baptized as an infant, but you're getting a little long in the tooth and you haven't made a profession of faith, your baptism may serve for you as a sign of the judgment that is to come. If you're an adult and you've never been baptized, heed the words of what baptism signifies to the world. If you're a grown-up and you haven't allowed yourself to submit to this sign of the covenant, if you have not publicly professed your faith in Jesus Christ, then this sign teaches that you will suffer the judgment that Jesus would have suffered in your place had you believed in him. But if you do believe in Jesus Christ, he has already suffered your judgment for you on the cross. If you believe in Jesus Christ, though it may not seem like it to you, the power of Satan, the power of the world, the power of your old sin, sinful nature, these have been broken. They've been shattered. They no longer control you. You have been set free. You are free to obey your Father out of love, but not under compulsion. You are free. That's the promise that is held out by the sacrament, the sign of baptism. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been buried with Him. You have spiritually been raised with Him. And you will physically be raised on the last day, the day of judgment, the day of dread for everyone else who does not know Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. That is good news. Let us pray.